This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to today's program, during which time we hope to hear from some old friends and speak with some new friends. Our old friends should include James Israel, publisher of the Humor Times, who shares with Radio Parallax the distinction of being a local purveyor of America's foremost political comic, Mr. Will Durst, who I'm sure we'll be hearing from before the end of this segment. We hope that some of you managed to catch his recent appearance here, I guess it was at the Punchline last weekend. I had previously seen his from LSD to OMG uh, little skit, uh, but Mr. Millen took it in and said, well, what'd you say, it was pretty darn good? Two thumbs up. All right. And among our new friends, we hope to hear from Joe Rubin, investigative reporter who's worked for National Public Radio. Joe's done some pretty good work here locally for the Sacramento News and Review and others. We've quoted him before, and hopefully we'll quote from him rather more directly later today. If we don't get to Joe today, we'll have him on next week. Someone we are going to definitely have on today is fellow KDVS DJ Presto Pancakes, who for the last quarter followed us. And we owe him a little bit of time because we kind of encroached on him a bit, and I, I have to make it up to him. So we'll try and do that later today. Before we start today's program talking about this date in history, I want to step back a moment to note that it was during this month, 150 years ago, that the American Civil War ended. What kind of hits me between the eyes about this anniversary is that I remember very distinctly 50 years ago when it was 100 years after these momentous events. And if there's an advantage to getting older, and, and there are a few, it is that you have much larger benchmarks to work with in evaluating things like political chicanery or scientific advances or how society changes or doesn't change. But uh, before I get too philosophical, I want to cite uh, something sent to us by Donald because he thought we might be interested, which was that this week marked the 80th birthday of Herb Alpert. Herb Alpert was and is a hell of a musician, and despite his affiliation with the so-called Tijuana Brass, we should note that Mr. Alpert was actually not of Mexican extraction. Oh. Don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure for several years back in the 60s, he went head-to-head -head with the Beatles and beat them in record sales. He's the co-founder of the independent A&M record label and won a bunch of Grammys, and we just like him. So we want to doff our hat to him today and, well... Dedicate our musical beds today to Mr. Alpert. And you know, Mr. McMillan, we ought to see if we can get him as a guest. I'm all for it. All right. And that uh, we will have more to say about older people during the course of the show. But let us get to, on this date in history, our date today is the 2nd of April, which unfortunately, again, denies us the opportunity to make today's program an April Fool's joke. Although in some ways, Mr. McMillan and I do like to think of this program as an ongoing April Fool's joke. But at any rate, in history, on April 2nd, let's start with 1513. The Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon set foot on the Florida coast near present-day St. Augustine and claimed the territory for Spain. And yes, despite what you think about Christopher Columbus sailing the ocean blue, he never actually set foot on American soil. Although we have to give him all the credit in the world for having discovered the Bahamas. 
On April 2nd in the year 1796, a forged Shakespearean play, Vortigern and Rowena, flopped in London and exposed in the process its author, William Henry Ireland, one of history's more remarkable frauds. And if I can uncover the wonderful account I have somewhere in my library of that uh, remarkable series of events, we'll talk about that in a future show. Something else I need to find is a newspaper I have from 1865, for it was within a day or two of April 2nd in 1865, at which time Ulysses S. Grant overran Confederate trenches defending the Virginia cities of Petersburg and Richmond. By nightfall, Jefferson Davis and the Confederate government had fled, and Richmond itself was ablaze. What I always thought was interesting about being given this paper as a boy, my my dad had a friend who collected such memorabilia, was that even as a kid, I recognized PR spin when I saw it. The newspaper reporters described Jefferson Davis as referring to the previous events as a blessing in disguise, as it now meant the Confederate forces were free to move about and didn't have to worry about defending their capital. You know, even when you're 11, you read something like that and go, right. You know, a lot happened on this day. On April 2nd in 1917, suffragette and pacifist Jeanette Rankin became the first woman ever elected to the U.S. Congress. She took her seat in the Capitol as a representative from Montana. She is, the, as far as I know, the only person in Congress with the distinction of having voted against U.S. entry into World War I and U.S. entry into World War II, which um, shows she has pretty good credentials as a pacifist. And finally, it was on April 2nd in 1953 that British scientist Francis Crick and American James Watson published the first description of the double helix structure of DNA in a brief piece in the journal Nature. Watson's subsequent bestseller, chronicling those events, the double helix, is notable for its um, frank admission of, of Watson's lust for the Nobel Prize, which he eventually got although it's widely agreed in scientific circles that his co-recipient of the award, Maurice Wilkins, was not deserving. And there's also the question of the stolen X-ray crystallography uh, data from Rosalind Franklin, but we don't have time to talk about that today. Another thing that we need to address in future discussions on this show. And our quote today comes from philosopher John Stuart Mill, who once said, The amount of eccentricity in a society has generally been proportional to the amount of genius, mental vigor, and moral courage it contained. We suspect he's on to something. Our quip of the day comes from Robert C. Edwards, who said, Never exaggerate your faults. Your friends will attend to that. Our joke of the day, sent to us by Paul, is as follows. On their way to get married, a young Catholic couple was involved in a fatal car accident. While sitting outside the pearly gates waiting for St. Peter to process them, the couple began to wonder, could they possibly get married in heaven? When St. Peter showed up, they asked him. He paused for a moment and said, I don't know. This is the first time anyone has asked me that. But let me go find out. While they were waiting, the couple began to wonder, what would happen if it didn't work out? Could you get a divorce in heaven? Seven hours later, St. Peter finally returned, looking a bit bedraggled. But he did proclaim proudly, Yes, you can get married here in heaven. Well, that's great, said the couple, but we were also wondering, what if things don't work out? Can we also get a divorce in heaven? At that point, St. Peter slammed his clipboard down, got red in the face, and said, Oh, come on! It took me seven hours to find a priest up here. Do you have any idea how long it would take me to find a lawyer? 
Our good news of today's program is that apparently Costa Rica did not use a drop of fossil fuel to power itself during the first 75 days of this year. Costa Rica gets most of its energy from hydroelectric power, which has been going strong since January, thanks to some heavy rains. Of course, in fairness, I think we do have to balance that off with another news item we came across, which was that up in North Dakota, with this fracking boom going on, the North Dakotans are currently flaring off, i.e. just meaning simply burning 26% of the gas being produced from their fields. The rest of the U.S. has to only flare off 1% of its natural gas on the average. Of course, it is noted that burning it is better than letting it escape as methane because methane is a much more efficient global warming gas. Once again, Costa Rica scores over the U.S. of A. And for the first time in Radio Parallax history, we have three anecdotes for today's show. The first comes from CBS News, which notes that a burglary suspect down in Roswell, Georgia, was killed during a Georgia police chase. The remarkable part about this story is that he's now been identified as a 17-year-old boy who made national news when he received a controversial heart transplant two years ago. The chase took place earlier this week when 17-year-old Anthony Stokes allegedly kicked in the door of an elderly woman's house in Roswell, Georgia, and fired at least one gunshot at her as she ran into a back bedroom. Stokes was reported to have fled the scene in a black car he allegedly stole, and minutes later, authorities spotted the vehicle and tried to make a traffic spot, but he sped away. During the police chase, Stokes lost control of the vehicle, hit a car and a pedestrian before crashing into a sign. CBS affiliate WGCL reports that Stokes received a human... CBS affiliate WGCL reports that Stokes received his heart transplant in 2013 after doctors had first ruled him non-compliant, meaning they felt he would not do what he's advised to do and therefore was at risk. But with the help of the Georgia chapter of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, Stokes' story made national news and the hospital then reconsidered. Reverend Samuel Mosteller, president of the group, said at the time, they talked about truancy, they talked about absence in school. There were a list of those things. Poverty was one of the criteria. Mosteller said at the time of the transplant, Stokes did not fit the stereotype of someone who's a criminal. WGCL reported, however, that his Facebook page portrayed a contrasting teen to what Mosteller talked about. He had pictures of himself smoking, holding guns, and photos of piles of cash. On a rather happier note, we would like to uh, point out that a local 95-year-old has gotten himself into the Guinness Book of World Records by flying his airplane. Paul Weber Jr. of Cameron Park circled around the airfield three times, and in doing so, at the age of 95 years, four months, and 23 days, after a discussion with the people at uh, Guinness, uh, has now entered the record books under a new category, the oldest qualified pilot still licensed and flying solo. From what I can gather from the article by Ed Fletcher and Bill Lindelof in the Sacramento Bee, is that the oldest pilot ever to fly with somebody else in the plane was an 105-year-old man named Cole Kugel. We congratulate Paul Weber Jr. And our third anecdote for today's program is a sad one. The world's oldest person, a Japanese woman named Misao Okawa, died on Wednesday. She passed a few days after celebrating her 117th birthday. And she, too, is recognized by the Guinness World Records people as being the world's oldest person. But what strikes me is that she was born on March 5th, 
1898. It is now believed that the world's oldest person is also of Japanese ancestry and is 115, but this woman was born on March 15, 1900, which means that the passing of Misao Okawa means that no one is left alive who was born in the 19th century. We, uh, we all knew that day had to come, and apparently that day was Wednesday, and I'm, I'm a little saddened by that. And no, please don't write in to tell us that <laughs> the person born in 1900 still qualifies for the 19th century. Radio Parallax takes the viewpoint that the first century has 99 years, and that all the centuries after that start with the years with the zeros in it. Because that's what makes sense. Of course, we do hasten to add that that opinion, like all those heard in this program, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. All members of which we feel certain were born after 1900. All right, let's do stats for today's program. And again, we have more than one. Our first comes from the December's Harper's Index, which notes that the portion of the 100 best-paid U.S. CEOs who earn more annually than their companies pay in federal taxes was one out of three. Yes, take a look at those 100 top-paid CEOs and note that a third of the time, they got more money from the company than the company paid in taxes. Our second stat, according to Slate.com, is that since February of 1985, the average global temperature has been hotter every month than the 20th century average for that month, which makes 360 consecutive months of warmer than average global temperatures. Yes, every month for 30 straight years. Think there's something to this global warming idea? Final stat for today, according to the WashingtonPost.com, Americans are expected to spend roughly $9 billion, with a B, illegally gambling on the NCAA tournament this year. That is significantly more than the $3.7 billion spent to influence the 2012 midterm elections. Of course, this March madness total was bet by roughly 40 million people, or 12.6% of the nation's population, whereas only 0.2% of Americans made contributions to the 2014 elections. And as an addendum to that sad story, we want to note that um, the Sacramento News and Reviews editorial pages scored some points by citing HBO's Last Week Tonight with John Oliver talking about this March madness. Said the paper, you might have noticed the endless corporate sponsorship during the games on TV. Well, not us, because I would have to have a gun pointed at me to watch college basketball. But that's just me. As Oliver's show pointed out, says the paper, corporate support and TV deals are making the universities involved in the tournament and the NCAA itself pretty damn wealthy. Everybody's getting paid, and more than ever, except the athletes. That's because for decades, the NCAA has considered athletes in college sports amateurs. The organization says students are compensated with a college education. But, note the editors, as Oliver pointed out, many student-athletes don't have meaningful time to study during their college experience, or they take easy degree track courses that won't necessarily help them after graduation. Some get injured and lose their scholarships and incur expensive medical bills because, hey, no workers' comp, and hardly any of the student-athletes become professionals and rake in the big paydays. Actually, fewer than 2%. Meanwhile, they note the universities are building new field houses, stadiums, and arenas. Deans and coaches rake in seven-figure salaries, and the financial stakes keep rising. This in a country 
that is seeing its educational costs spiral out of control. What is wrong with this picture? The News and Reviews says they should show. The News and Reviews suggests that although these athletes may be amateurs, they're part of a professional money-making sports racket and they should get a paycheck. Well, yeah. How about figuring a way to plug money out of this whole circus back into education? Novel concept. All right, finally, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a good week last week for rethinking your operations with the news that the new director of the Secret Service appeared before an outraged congressional panel last week to try and explain how his agency had become embroiled in yet another high-profile security lapse. This latest incident occurred last month at the White House when two allegedly drunk senior Secret Service agents returning from a party accidentally drove through an active bomb investigation reportedly driving over the suspicious package itself. That's before they collided with a barrier. The agents were given neither sobriety tests, nor were they punished. And Director Joseph Clancy had to admit he only heard about the embarrassing incident five days later via an anonymous email. Yeah, the Secret Service needs to do some rethinking, uh, we would say. And it was a bad week for new uses of genetic technology last week with the news that a Virginia condo complex announced that all of its dogs must undergo DNA testing so that any unscooped poop can be traced to its owner, who will then be fined up to $500. And it was an ugly week late last month for National Foreign Language Week when it was revealed that a New York State high school witnessed an uproar when a student recited the Pledge of Allegiance in Arabic. Student Andrew Zink said reciting the pledge in a different language was meant to show that what makes you American is not the language you speak, but the ideas you believe in. And we would reiterate, this was during National Foreign Language Week. But the district superintendent would then publicly apologize, saying the use of Arabic divided the school in half. And we're about due for a break. But before we do that, we're going to hear from our old pal, Mr. Will Durst. Who, as far as we can ascertain, doesn't even know Arabic. Hey guys, Will Durst here to say winter really is over. We children of the press always get excited every spring before the quadrennial when the first red nose pops out of the presidential wannabe clown car. This year, the seasonal harbinger is Ted Cruz, who announced his running for the highest office of the land at a place called Liberty University in front of an assembly where attendance was required. Mandatory attendance at Liberty University. Just say no. Sorry, that's not a freedom the inmates of Liberty University are afforded. This is the perfect metaphor for Crazy Cruz's candidateship, because Raphael Edward Cruz is the contradiction man. This Princeton and Harvard-educated dominionist loves to surf on the crest of his constituency's ignorance. He recently compared himself to Galileo, claiming to be similarly attacked for his belief that global warming doesn't exist. And 
And it's an apt comparison, except for the fact that Galileo was a scientist refuting the teachings of the church, and Cruz is a religious man refuting the teachings of science. Other than that, spot on. The junior senator from Texas doesn't believe in climate change, evolution, or much science at all. Wouldn't be surprised to see him spearhead a movement to repeal the law of gravity. He offered up as proof that global warming is a myth because it snowed in New Hampshire this year, which is like saying there is no sin in Las Vegas because Mother Teresa once flew over it on a flight back home to India. But it isn't guaranteed smooth sailing for the chairman of the Science, Space, and Competitiveness Senate Subcommittee, since Donald Trump is seriously considering running as well, and it is assumed he will demand to see the Canadian-born Senator of Cuban Ancestry's birth certificate. Galileo spent 10 years in prison for his beliefs. Perhaps fate plans an extending Mr. Cruz's analogy. For Radio Parallax, I'm Wilders. And frankly, we have nothing to add on the subject of Ted Cruz, so we'll leave a go at that. But let's have more Herb Alpert, starting with one of my personal favorites, The Lonely Bull. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stick around.